Take your Bibles, if you would, again this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, the passage that has occupied our attention for months now, as we consider still what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. And here, within that Great Commission, our Lord speaks about baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so from here, we have begun to look at what is commonly called the doctrine of the Trinity. Now the term or the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. There's a lot of people who say they cannot believe in the Trinity because it doesn't appear in the Bible. There are a number of things, and I won't go into the list at this point, but there's a number of things that we believe from the Bible, the title of which, or the specific word of which, we may not find in the Scriptures. And the Trinity is one of those. But the Trinity is a theological term developed by the early church to describe and to understand or to come to grips with as best we can how God reveals himself in the scriptures as one God and yet as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And right here in the text that we're looking at, it is undeniable that Jesus refers to and points to the Trinity. As he says, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This doctrine is a central doctrine of the Christian church. And I remind you of what we mentioned last Lord's Day, that if a person or a group does not believe in the Trinity as it is given in the Scriptures, they are denying the Scriptures, they are denying the God of the Scriptures, and whatever else they may call themselves, they are not Christians, nor are they a Christian church. For to deny the Trinity, as I said, is to deny the God of the Bible as He reveals Himself. The Trinity is a central, foundational doctrine of Christianity and of the Christian church. Now this study comes to us, as I said, in the broader series that we've been seeing, the ongoing work of Christ. I find it encouraging that this is one of the last things that he clearly laid out to his apostles before his ascension as he appeared to them here following his resurrection. He tells them that there's indeed the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what we will see as we continue in our study is that this isn't the first time that he referred to this. In fact, we find it often in the New Testament. This is a prime and a wonderful, a key example but it is not exclusive to the New Testament. We will find this doctrine all through the Scriptures. But we began last Lord's Day 
by looking at the biblical fact, the teaching of the scripture, that there is but one God. We do not have three gods. We have one God. And right in this text, Jesus says to them, baptizing them in the name, singular, not the names, but the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God, not three, one name, but He is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We further looked at the Old Testament as God reveals Himself, and we looked at several passages where He says, I am God, and there is no other. There is no God that is like the God of the Bible. Think about it. He is the all-powerful Creator God. And when I use the word all-powerful, we sort of like just say that, and we're used to it. We, We sometimes use the word omnipotent. He's the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God. Well, if He is the all-powerful God, how could there be any other God that was all-powerful? There couldn't be. There can only be one all-powerful God. So even when we use language like that, we are testifying to the fact that we believe that there is one God And there is no one else like this God. This is what we find in the scriptures. He declares himself, who will you liken me to and make us alike? I alone am God. And that is who we worship. One God. The God. The true and living God. We also turn to that very familiar and commonly known passage from Deuteronomy known as the Shema, that God is one God. It says there in the text that the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's the passage that they would teach to all of their children and that they would know and they would want that on their lips when they died. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. He's not three, he's not many, He is indeed one. And we also saw that Jesus himself repeated this text as being part of the greatest commandment. The Lord is one, and you shall love him with all of your heart and soul and mind. This is what Jesus repeated even as he was teaching the scribes and Pharisees that he is indeed the very Son of God. And yet there's one God. We're going to talk a little bit about that today as we get towards the end of the message. The Christian church, first and foremost, is monotheistic. That is, one God. We believe in one God. He is the all-perfect, all-powerful God. There's none other like Him. The God of the Bible is the only God. You know how 
much flack you take for saying stuff like that today. Oh, why don't you, why don't you consider uh, uh, the sincere Muslim who believes in Allah? Very, very famous and well-noted evangelist not too many years ago said that a sincere Muslim would go to heaven. Allah is not God. And it drives me mad when news reporters translate Allah as God. They'll say that uh, a Muslim said Allah something or other, and the news media will translate it. He said God is this. God is great. Allah is Allah, a false pagan God. God is God, and there is only one God. Allah is the God of their imagination. God, Jehovah God, is the God of the Bible, who saves and does mighty works and mighty miracles, who sent His only Son. God is God. Allah is an idol, a pagan god. And the same with all of the other small g gods that are very prevalent in our day. There is no other god except the God of the Bible. He alone is God. Now today, I want to take up with how this God reveals himself to us in the scriptures, or we could call it the biblical revelation of the three persons given to us in the Bible. Foundational to this is the understanding that the Bible is the Word of God. Once again, we run up against walls when we say that this is the Word of God. This alone is the Word of God. We call it inspired. We call it inerrant. We call it complete. You know what that means, right? Inspired. That means that it is God-breathed. Theopanoustos. God-breathed. It's His Word. It's His revelation to us. It is inspired. It is infallible. It has no mistakes, no errors, no contradictions. And it is complete. There is no more new revelation. You tell that to Pentecostals, and you'll find yourself doing battle. Well, God told me, no, He didn't. You tell that to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they have different revelation from their leader. You tell that to Mormons, and they got a couple of extra books thrown in. The Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. They've got all kinds of different revelation. We have this. This is all that God has given, and it's plenty. It's adequate for every need that we have because it's been given to us by Him. Plenary inspiration. Every word is the very word of God. So if you believe that, then when you go to study it, you take the words apart and you start to understand what is being said because you believe that's what the way God wrote it. God gave it exactly this way, and so as we look at it and we begin to take it apart and understand it and learn it, that's what God wanted us to know. And that's what we're going to find 
on several areas regarding the Trinity today, I ask you to turn with me again to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the very first words of the Bible. As we find that the way God reveals Himself as three persons is not unique to the New Testament. It's not only Christianity. It's in all the revelation that God has given. Right from the very beginning. So we look today at what is being said by God in, first of all, Old Testament references to the Trinity. And here in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at the creation of the world. Verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Some of you don't know me very well yet. I hope you will. I am a very strong advocate of creationism. We went through a series for years in our Wednesday evenings talking about creation, its impact, its importance. I believe in a literal six-day creation. You know, we have all these guys, and you'd be surprised how many people you listen to on the radio and you admire who are what are called theistic evolutionists. Theistic evolutionists. In other words, well, yes, God created, but it took millions and millions and millions of years. I believe what the Bible says. I am a six-day literal creationist. And because they say that the word day that is used in the scriptures here could mean a period of time. You know what? I understand that. But look at verse 4. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Okay, day could mean a period of time. But it could not mean a period of time when you preface it by there was morning and there was evening one day. It's one day. And you can either believe what the Bible says or you can reject it like so many of these people do. I believe it. And I can't turn to this passage without saying how vital and foundational this doctrine is as well. We're looking at the Trinity, a foundational doctrine. But the doctrine of creation is equally as important. Because if you take away God as creator, then you don't have to answer to God. There's no such thing as sin. There's no reason for a Savior to save you from your sin. So Christianity collapses as a myth. You kids, listen to your pastor. I don't care what your teachers tell you in school. They teach evolution. Evolution is a lie. Creation is the truth. Creation is what God says. Evolution is what science says. And it used to be called the theory of evolution. 
And they seem to have dropped that phrase, the theory of. And now they just say, it's true. It's not true. There is no basis for it. There is no evidence of it. Evolution is impossible. Mathematically impossible. When you consider the absolute impossibility of cells forming and becoming greater objects, it is mathematically impossible. Some of you who have been around for years have heard me tell what I heard D. James Kennedy say one time. That evolution is, as, is more impossible than if, let's say, Hurricane Matthew hit South Carolina, went to a junkyard and a tornado formed and spun around the junk and out came a fully functioning and fueled 747. The odds of a tornado hitting a junkyard and out popping a fueled 747 are greater or better than the possibility for evolution. Evolution is more impossible than that. It can't be true. And yet, in our day, it's taught as a fact. Now, what does this have to do with the Trinity? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) But when we're here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we need to remember this great doctrine of creation. God is creator. How do you know he's creator? Because you're here. Because, as R.C. Sproul once said, if you wiggle your finger, you know God is creator. Because if you can wiggle your finger, you're here. And you're here because God created you. And God created everything. So my semi-annual message on creation, though brief it is. Here in this text, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What we find here is that this word used by God himself and used, my understanding is over a thousand times in the Old Testament, Elohim, in the beginning, Elohim, Created the heavens and the earth. The word is plural. It is the plural use of the word in the Hebrew. And it is mostly used that way in Scripture when it refers to God. Elohim is plural for God. So this God, who is omnipotent, all-powerful, is able to create the earth, to create the heavens and the earth, out of nothing, ex nihilo, the term is plural. Now it's not saying gods, but it is the plural use of the term God. And so right here in the very beginning, it is plural, Because it is beginning to show us all that God is one God and three persons. And we go on to see that in the next verse. The earth was formless and void, 
and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. This Spirit of God describes one different than in verse 1. The verse 1 says simply, God created. Verse 2 speaks of this Spirit of God, which is different. Now some say that the reference is to the wind, that that's all that's being referred to here. Ah, let's look a little further, if you would, please, and see that wind wasn't created till the next day. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters which were below, and the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. That's when God made the atmosphere around the earth. You can't have wind without the atmosphere. So the references that some say that this uh, verse 2, saying that this Spirit of God is a reference to the wind, are impossible, because wind wasn't created yet. Most theologians, worth their salt, do believe that this is a reference to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In my Bible, the word Spirit is capitalized for that reason. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so we do believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. One God, yes, but already we see a second distinct person, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, still in Genesis chapter 1, look down, if you would please, to verse 26 as we begin to deal with the creation of man. You'll notice here in verse 26, The scripture says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. What? Let us make man in our image. Us. Now, I don't think you have to be a graduate and have a master's degree in English to understand that us means more than one. It's us, not me. That's more than one. The same thing with the term our. Let us make man in our image. So he begins by saying, let us. There was obviously someone else present. And then he says, in our image, plural. Now, some say perhaps he was talking to the angels. Angels do not create. He could not have been talking to the angels, and it would have been ridiculous, as some say, that he was talking to the earth. Why would he talk to the earth? Let us 
You know, that's, I think there's a lot of people like that today. You know, we've got to be one with the earth. You know, that, that's, they say he was talking about Mother Earth. Mother Earth is blasphemous. Don't use language like that. Mother Nature is blasphemous. Don't use language like that. There's no such thing as Mother Nature or Mother Earth. There's Creator God. And storms like Matthew coming up the, through the Caribbean right now are not Mother Nature's doing. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. It's God. God is even responsible for the wind, for the weather. When you believe in a sovereign God, you believe with all of your heart that every drop of rain that falls does so by the direct decree of a sovereign God. That every snowflake that falls is created by Him individually and different and falls exactly where He wants it to fall and is there because the sovereign God put it there. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. That gets my wife too. She cringes when she hears the weathermen say that. Mother Nature. It's God, folks. The sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God is responsible for the heavens and the earth. Remember, we talked a little bit about that, even in what Jesus said as he stood before the disciples, raised from the dead. And he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's responsible for the universe and for the angels. And he's responsible even for the very rain on the earth, the earth itself, as well as every man that dwells on it. He's God. He's God. Holy God. And so we have here in the scriptures the teaching that this is God, if we can say it reverently, having a conversation among himself. As he says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. He is having a conversation with himself. God the Father, speaking to God the Son, and to God the Holy Spirit. There is no other possible explanation for the fact that he uses the term, let us make man in our image. This is the Trinity being revealed even in creation. And if you think about it, what a wonderful thing that we are created in the image of the Trinity. We are created in the image of God, the triune God. This is what we have in the scriptures. Now, I ask you to look over to Genesis chapter 3, and we come to the fall of man. Genesis chapter 3. Now, we hear in the scriptures that the serpent comes and tempts Eve. And I want to again make sure that we remember 
that this didn't happen the next day. We went through a study on this not too long ago and found that most likely uh, Adam and Eve were close to, if not beyond, a hundred years by the time chapter 3 begins. This wasn't like the day after creation or something like that. And I can't take the time to go through all of what we went through to look at that. But this is somewhere, somewhere around the neighborhood of a hundred years after creation. And here comes the Satan and he tempts Eve. And you know the account. God has told them not to eat from the tree which was in the middle of the garden. Verse 3, because God has said, when you eat from that tree, you will die. And yet Eve takes of the tree and she eats and Adam takes and eats as well. Verse 7, their eye, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here we have God comes through the garden. He's looking for the man. You know he knew where he was. It's not like God didn't know what happened. But he comes through the garden. Adam and Eve hide themselves. Now, I don't want to talk much about this right now, but I want you to remember it. God came to the garden. And then he pronounces the judgments upon the serpent and the woman and the man, but also the promise of a redeemer. But I want you to turn now and look, if you would please, at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Like one of us. Once again, who is he talking to and why does he use the term us? I remind you that I started this by saying that we believe in plenary inspiration. That every word is the very word of God. And that the words in the scriptures are not here by accident. And that even the tense is important to understand the meaning of what God gives us in the scriptures. And so when he says he has become like one of us, who is he talking about? We do not believe in many gods. So once again, this can only be a reference to God speaking within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the only possible explanation. That he says here in the text, to himself has become like one of us. He can't be, as some suggest perhaps, be speaking to Satan. Why would he say that to Satan? You know, too many people give Satan too much. They make, they make it out to be as if Satan is omniscient, that he knows everything. 
or that he's all wise, that he's so smart. Well, he is, but he's not like God. He's a created being. And because he's a created being, he can't be as powerful as all-knowing as the creator who created him. He's a created being. One day I'll go into this series, the other created beings, of which are angels and Satan being one. But he's not God. So God's not talking to Satan, look, he's become like us. That's not it at all. He's talking with himself, the Trinity. He has become like one of us. The triune God speaks to himself. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 13. Let's uh, tap into your knowledge of God's dealing with the nation of Israel a little bit. Exodus chapter 13. And look, if you would, down to verse 20. Then they, they set out from Succoth and camped in Ephraim on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And we, har- we hardly remember this we were, or think about it. But when Israel was traveling, there was this pillar of cloud that would go before them by day. And a pillar of fire that would go before them by night. And so there was this constant pillar in front of the nation of Israel leading them. Now I ask you if you would please turn over a couple of pages to chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Look down, if you would please, to verse 20. And here's what God says. And this is uh, Moses relating what God says. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgressions since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites and the Hesitites, the Hittites and the Pezzites and so on. But he speaks of this angel going before them. He says that he will send his angel before them. Now be assured, this is Moses telling them what God says. It's not Moses saying, I'm going to send my angel before you. It's God saying he's going to send his angel before them. And most believe, many believe, that he's referring to that 
pillar being an angel of God before the Israelites, either the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. But that was the angel that went before before the nation of Israel as they went into the lands. God says it was his angel, and many believe indeed that it was the angel of God. Now, I want to ask you if you've ever heard of this term referring to the angel of God. Some of you, I'm sure, have, and some of you perhaps have not. But it is often referred to as a theophany. A theophany. And that is when we see the angel of God in the scriptures appearing. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, as some suggest the pillar of cloud and fire would be. Because if you recall in the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out onto the apostles and the disciples, he was like a tongue of fire resting upon them. So some suggest that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But there are other times when a theophany is often called an an appearance of Jesus prior to his incarnation. Now think with me, if you would, please, and remember that Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born in Bethlehem to a virgin. He was not non-existent and then suddenly became existent there in the the house and laid in the manger. That's not when Jesus began. He is eternal God. You read even in John's Gospel, as he begins, it's very much like Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was there in creation. Jesus existed long ago from eternity. So what was he doing? If we read about the God of the Father and once in a while the Holy Spirit, what was Jesus doing? Well, we know that God, the Father, is a spirit and a spirit does not have human form. We speak of the mighty outstretched hand of God, but God doesn't have an arm. We speak of the things that God does. He speaks, but God doesn't have a tongue and lungs and a mouth. God is a spirit. But the second person of the Trinity took on bodily form when he was born to a virgin in Bethlehem. And therefore, many believe that when we see God appear in the Old Testament, It is Christ prior to his incarnation. That is a theophany. Can you think of one? Adam and Eve sinned. They were in the garden and they hid themselves. God comes in the form of a man. Many believe that to have been a theophany, an appearance of Christ prior to his incarnation. There are others. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis. Back again to Genesis. And look at chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. This is the account of Abram pleading with God on behalf of Sodom 
Gomorrah, you remember he said, what if there's 50 people in there that were righteous or 20 or 5? He's pleading with God. This is that account. But look how it begins. Verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of the Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Okay? But who is it that appeared to him? The Lord. And I can't take the time to go deeply into this, but it was the Lord and two angels. And you remember later on, after Abraham goes back and forth asking if there's this many righteous or that many righteous, will you still destroy it? Yes, God still destroyed it, you know, because there weren't that many righteous. But the Lord wasn't with them at that time. Only the two angels went to Sodom and brought out Lot and his family. But here we have an account of the Lord appearing to Abram prior to his incarnation. And so if you look down to verse 16, then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him. So this is obviously God speaking. He is chosen by God, and that his people will become a great and a mighty nation by the sovereign choice of God. But this is the appearance of a man as he stood there before Abraham. So it is what is commonly called a theophany. And this usually refers to Christ or Jesus prior to his incarnation. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to one more, and that's found in the prophet Daniel. We could look to others. You find it in the account of Samson. But here we have uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as you recall, refused to bow to the image erected by the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with wrath, and he has this furnace heated up, looking down to Daniel 3 and verse 19, filled with wrath because they uh, refused to bow. He gives orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it is usually heated and throw these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego characters into the fiery furnace. Verse 21. 
Then these men were tied up in their trousers, in their coats, in their caps, in their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What a picture. Here are the guys that take them up to kill them, and they die. And they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. They fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, tied up. Verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste and said to his high officials, Was it not three men? that we cast bound in the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the God. And of course, they took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the furnace, and they were alive. They hadn't even been scorched. Their hair, the eyebrows, wasn't even singed. There was no smell of smoke on their clothes. They were completely safe. And why was that? Because God, the Son, was with them in the midst of the flame, in the midst of the trial. God was in the furnace with them, protecting them. And this, again, is a theophany. An appearance of God, likely the Son, prior to His incarnation. This is the way that God shows Himself in the Scriptures. One God, and yet He appears in various ways to various men. And again, even in this same book, you go on to find that it was God who closed the mouths of the lions in the lion's den so that Daniel was not eaten. God did that. You know, God goes with you through your trials. How many of you have been thrown into a furnace like this? Sometimes it feels like we are. Sometimes we feel the pain of the fire that is brought upon us and it's difficult to go through. But be sure be certain that Christ is with you in the midst of the fire. Now, I wanted to turn to several other texts, and I know there are a lot of texts that we could turn to, and no doubt some of you wise theologians, you young theologians here, could uh, assist me and point me to some texts that you'd like me to bring. But I'm out of time for the day. So I'm going to pick up with one next Lord's Day that will take us from the Old Testament into the New Testament. It will be kind of a bridge for seeing what is said in the Old Testament and then what is repeated in the New Testament. But before we close today, I just want you to know several of us have been praying about this, that we would be better able to understand the Trinity. And I want to tell you right now, before we go any further, that you're not going to understand the Trinity. You cannot understand the Trinity. I cannot understand the Trinity. Theologians for centuries have been dealing with this. 
and they know they cannot explain or understand the Trinity. In fact, if you read the 1689 Confession of Faith, it's pretty blunt. We don't, we don't get it. We can't explain the Trinity. And it's true, we can't. But what I am going to try to do is to show you Scripture upon Scripture, and it, and it can't even be exhaustive, but to show you Scripture and to reason with you and to show you what God says in His Word so that we could at least, to the best of our abilities, understand what God has given us as a self-revelation. His revelation to us in this way. One God, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even in the Old Testament, we see references to the Trinity and areas where we see God manifesting Himself in a way that the Son is commonly manifested in the New Testament era or seen manifested in the New Testament. So this is what we're going to do. So at least you will know why it is that as a Christian church, we believe in the Trinity, despite the multitude of cults and other false religions who deny it and who will come and vehemently say it is impossible. Yes, it is impossible. But it is the God of the Bible. Whether you like it or believe it or not. One God, three persons. The Trinity. We'll pick up here again next Lord's Day. Let's pray.